0: Those joining us here on Al Jazeera, you join us on the news hour as uh, Tunisia seems to go uh, from uh, one disaster to another. For years after the 2011 revolution, Tunisia was hailed as the one success story of the uprisings around the region at the time. But its transition to democracy has been marred with setbacks. And on Sunday, July 25th, it hit its worst political crisis in a decade. Tunisia's president has now sacked the Minister of Defense and the acting Minister of Justice after dismissing the prime minister earlier and freezing parliament for 30 days. Some people have called it a coup. Others support President Kais Saied's decisions, saying he's standing up to entrenched and corrupt politicians. After months of protests across the country, many Tunisians are wondering, Should they view these latest developments with hope or skepticism? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. What's happening in Tunisia is a political crisis, but it's also a crisis of the economy, the health sector, the security apparatus. So we reached out to someone who could speak about all of those aspects of Tunisian society.
1: My name is Wien Chatewi. I'm a public policy specialist. I've been working on understanding the security sector better and seeing whether there's room for reform or there are other alternatives. I'm also the president of the Tunisian Observatory for Food Sovereignty and the Environment. And that's most of what I do right now. (laughs)
0: That's a lot <laughs> What were you doing when you heard the news that Tunisian President Kais Saied had frozen the Parliament and dismissed the Prime Minister, Hisham Mishishi. How did you react?
1: Just before he did that, we had the news on Facebook on his official presidency page that the president was meeting with the leadership of the security forces in Tunisia. And I wasn't sure what was coming, but my father, who sat right next to me, immediately said, I think he's taking over power. He is going to do something about this kind of situation that
0: the country's going through.
1: He even thought, I think he's dismissing the prime minister.
0: It was very interesting. Your father making a very prescient point. So what did he mean about what's been happening? What has been happening in Tunisia? So,
1: there's been a lot of discomfort, in general, on different levels. There were multiple protests that have taken place over the past year and a half, whether it's because of changes in prices, or it's because of new laws that someone in Parliament was trying to push for. So, a lot of people were observing the Parliament and just noticing how extremely spectacle-based a lot of what was happening was. Just fights and scandals, physical abuse, verbal abuse, low turnout rate for votes on key issues. There was basically disappointment after disappointment on all levels. So I think these are the different things that people felt have brought the country to a bit of a, all right, you know, where are we going from here? The next election is in 2024. Can we really wait till then?
0: After the president's moves, we saw celebrations in the streets. On the other hand, we're hearing the word coup being thrown around. People who are using it argue that the president has betrayed Tunisia's democratic ideals by shutting down the government in this way. He now controls the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches of government. What do you make of the dichotomy between celebrations in the street and accusations of a coup?
1: I think the dichotomy of the celebrations and the kind of discourse that this is a coup are both very much representative of the two sides of the argument of what's happening in Tunisia. As far as the celebrations, I think, 100% 100% they represent the kind of reaction that one would expect after really experiencing the brunt of all those issues that I just mentioned earlier. And added to that, for some Tunisians, the dissatisfaction with the major political parties, especially Ennahda.
0: In Ennahda in is the largest party in Tunisia's parliament right now.
1: A lot of people have grown dissatisfied not only with its political vision of moderate Islam, if that's how they present themselves, but also with the kind of policies that they've put forth or that they have hindered as the major force in parliament and as having multiple ministers take function over the past 10 years. So there is anger that is very real.
0: William says that in the face of that dissatisfaction, the president had an opening to present himself as a savior of sorts.
1: One of the things that he decided to do On July 25th was mentioned that he was removing parliamentary immunity and that he was going to take over public prosecution, which means that he has very clear intentions to target certain individuals within the parliament with prosecution. And the idea that Kaysayed is taking a radical action, that single, strong man is going to rule independently and not have to work through that bureaucracy, etc., That idea was revived, and I think it made a lot
0: of people happy. It's interesting because, in this instance, that perceived strongman is using the Constitution to back his actions. He is citing emergency powers granted to him by Article 80 of the Constitution to do what he did sacking the Prime Minister, freezing Parliament. Incidentally, he was a constitutional lawyer by profession before taking office. So for you, as a citizen, as someone who's watching this, does this hold up for you?
1: I think that the whole question of this being a coup or not and the constitutional issue is a debate that is happening, interestingly, not only among constitutional law experts right now. And I think that's really interesting for me as a citizen.
0: One part of the debate is that Article 80 says the president was supposed to consult the prime minister and parliament speaker before invoking it. But William says that stipulation is not black and white.
1: I have among my friends, lawyers and people who have studied under Kaysaid himself who have said consult doesn't mean that they have to reach a unanimous decision. All he had to do was let them know, hear from them, and then he can make up his own mind. So that's one way to interpret it.
0: Tunisians are also debating whether the president had just cause for using Article 80 in the first place. He's defended it.
1: How can a coup be based on the Constitution? This is an implementation of the constitutional script. Article 80 of the Constitution gives the president of the Republic the right to take the procedures he sees necessary in the face of an imminent danger.
0: But what imminent danger is he talking about? It's unclear.
1: To me, all of this is still pretty vague, especially when you are invoking a constitutional article that explicitly talks about emergency and danger and very specific circumstances. So I would have hoped that he would have been more explicit.
0: That said, overall, William is less worried about whether the president has the right to make these moves and more concerned about whether he can actually follow through on them.
1: What the modalities and what the traditional definitions of certain terms, like coup or the constitutionality, I think is a very important debate to have at the level of those who can have those conversations. But everywhere else, In the general population, our concern is, can he do what he said he would
0: do? He said he
1: could protect Tunisians from, you know, danger. He wasn't very clear on what that danger was. He spoke of corruption. He spoke of general issues that we have been seeing for a while. And then he is also saying that he will be responding to that and prosecuting those who need to be prosecuted, those who didn't take Tunisians' lives seriously, from that I would understand in terms of the COVID response. My concern as a policy specialist is how will he be able to institute these policies and make them work? I know that he has been responsible for some pretty lousy choices in terms of the team that he's put around him before, including Prime Minister Mishishi. So has he learned enough from those experiences to choose better people going forward? Or is he going to get too comfortable playing at it solo? I don't think that's possible for him if he really wants to make ministries function and he wants to respond to people's demands. So that's my concern.
0: You say that the concern right now is, will he be able to make this change? Will he be able to do what he said he could do with the right people around him? Clearly, the right people were not... The Prime Minister, Hisham Mashishi, the parliamentary speaker, Rashid Ganushi, because he's at odds with them. And according to the Constitution and in, in Article 80, the president is supposed to consult the prime minister and the speaker of the parliament before doing actions like he did. Ganushi says he was not consulted. So what is the president's disagreement with the prime minister and parliament as it stands right now?
1: I don't think there was ever a very explicit explanation of what this disagreement has been. We've seen the tension build up between Kaisaid and PM Mishishi and Speaker of the Parliament, and it's been tension that is very palpable, but it has never been expressed explicitly. One thing that we do know is Prime Minister Mishichi tried to bring in new ministers into his cabinet that Kaisaid um refused to accept, which is why so many ministries don't have ministers right now. Kai Syed has explicitly said that he will not accept ministers that he thinks have conflict of interest or corruption issues behind them. And that was the case for some of the people chosen by Mashishi. So I think that a lot of the disagreement has been around who gets to be in a decision-making power and who gets to be in a public office, a position like that.
0: As William mentioned earlier, President Saeed's overhaul of the government this week didn't happen in a vacuum. Many people support the step he's taken because they've been protesting against parliament for months now. Anger over the pandemic was a huge part of that.
1: The recent crisis has put Tunisia among the top countries in terms of the number of mortalities based on population size. The North African country has been facing an overwhelming COVID-19 caseload that has left more than 17,000 people dead in a population of around 12 million. There were protests related to people feeling that lockdowns were more punitive than they were protective. It was both politically and economically difficult because people had given up on the idea that lockdowns would also come with support from the government, actual financial support or at least basic support in terms of food things like that a lot of people are living day to day if you can't work and you're not receiving support from the government okay you might not catch covid but your kids are still growing hungry so it just seemed that there was policy after policy that was either missing a good chunk of what would make it an applicable livable policy or there was just general nonchalance at at the level of the parliament with all the political bickering, scandals, and abuse that was taking there.
0: And the other motivator behind the protests, the economy. Tunisia has a highly educated young population, and they can't find jobs. And they felt this way for a decade now. Economic problems were central to the 2011 protests, too. The anti-government momentum is building up. The demands of these protesters are the same. The former ruling party has to be banned, and those who served under the former President Zain al-Abidin Ali have to leave power. Those began because a fruit vendor named Mohamed Bouazizi self-immolated in frustration over his economic troubles. And hundreds of thousands of people joined in those protests that followed because that frustration was so relatable. How is the economy in Tunisia bearing today compared to then? Has anything changed?
1: right now the economy is not doing very well. People are increasingly finding it difficult to purchase basic goods. There is a huge public debt and there is a huge dependence on IMF loans and packages. And this has been a cycle that we've been in for quite some time now. But to be fair, a lot of the issues result from a direction in which the Tunisian economy has been going since before 2011. The reliance on a mostly tourism-based economy. Groups linked to Al-Qaeda and ISIL staged attacks across the country. Gunmen killed 38 European tourists during an attack at a beach resort near the city of Sousse, which significantly affected the tourism sector. Offshore companies coming in and having advantages that are, in some cases, quite detrimental to the way that the government collects taxes, for example. Tunisia has a new constitution and there's political progress. But so little has been done to reform the economy. The lack of focus on tax evasion even from local companies and businessmen and women. The World Bank says the same business laws that closed off the Tunisian economy then still exist. And many people are waiting for economic justice. I would say that A lot of what we were aspiring to in 2011 was, you know, more jobs, more social security opportunities for small and medium farmers. And yet, 10 years down the road, it's just been a continuation of more and more weak national economy. That has been a really disappointing, actually, aspect of the past 10 years.
0: Personally, how have people around you fared?
1: Around me, I can definitely notice the impact. What I noticed the most, perhaps, especially during this time in the pandemic, is the impact of hiring freezes in public hospitals and public administrations. And this is a direct consequence of IMF conditionalities. I have seen doctors and teachers who are friends go abroad because either they can't find the jobs here or they can't find the right standard of living here. So how do you fight a pandemic and how do you respond to, you know, new variants and a lack of vaccine availability with fewer and fewer doctors? We have also seen, not just in terms of people, but in terms of institutions, establishments, the austerity measures that the governments have been taking over the past ten years have led to an increasingly struggling health system. And so, I see it not only in the people but in the institutions that I should have access to, and I'm struggling.
0: Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. At the time of the 2011 revolution, Zine El Abidine Ben Ali was in power, a longtime leader who had been there for more than 20 years. Until the Jasmine Revolution of January 2011, Zine El Abidine Ben Ali was an omnipresent but untouchable leader. Many people accused him of corruption, mismanagement, holding his own interests over theirs during his time in power. Ben Ali's regime was characterized by repression, with arbitrary arrests, interrogations and torture. Were you part of the protests against him? Yes. Yeah. So looking back, there were a lot of demands protesters had in in this uprising. Democracy is one of the things that came out of it. Is this the democracy that you envisioned and you hoped for when you were out on the streets?
1: Um, The key demands of the time were freedom, dignity, and bread, right? It was about being able to have food on the table, not being impoverished, and then dignity and freedom. And I think when people imagined and envisioned the dignity and freedom parts, everybody had a bit of a different interpretation. I still remember in 2011, there were really heated debates about, you know, who writes the new constitution and how do you vote them in and all of that, about whether it would be a presidential system, a parliamentary system, what promotes more, not necessarily democracy, but more representation. So when I look now at what we have, I just look at the impact in the end The parliament that we have had, the discussions within it, have very rarely reflected popular demands. The political elite that has risen to the top post-2011, I don't think is extremely representative of the people in Tunisia. And I think this is why voter turnout has been consistently lower and lower and lower. And I think that's also why Qais Syed had the popularity that he did when he came forward. His rise in the elections was very much based on him being an outsider, like someone who has not kind of sullied his hands with, with uh, being involved in Tunisian politics before, or being involved in business. Um, he's, he finally represented something a little bit different than the kind of people that we were looking at politically and in, in the parliament.
0: Picking up on what you were just saying, even as some people support President Qais Sayyid's moves this week, you have others who fear that it shows him strengthening his power and and they're remembering Ben Ali and wondering if we could see a return to an authoritarian leadership. How have you been feeling about that? And when you look back, what does it make you feel?
1: My interpretation of the current context, I try to separate from the Banali experience. It's important to be very conscious of what Qaysayid needs to do and say in order to reassure people that his tendencies are not the tendencies of Ben Ali. But already it's difficult to imagine them being the same. Let's not forget that Ben Ali, when he took over in what is called the constitutional coup of 87, Ben Ali was from within the realm of the security forces in Tunisia. He had a network of power that allows him to take a certain position and to have a certain leverage. Kais said I don't think, has the same persona, and the same CV, and the same background, and the same network. My biggest concern is the Tunisian people have experienced disappointment after disappointment over the past 10 years. So I'm wondering, you know, what are the next steps? Because if the Tunisian people have yet another disappointment, my concern is what will happen to the belief in the democratic system going forward.
0: And that's The Take... This episode was produced by Priyanka Telvey, with Dina Kispe, Alexandra Locke, Nagin Auliai, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Aya El is the Takes Engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Finton is our story editor, and Stacey Samuel is executive producer. We'll be back.